So good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. It's 2023. You're probably uh, probably just happy to be out of the house. It might be the first day in about a week that you're pretty confident you know what day it is. And, and I know that we were not able to gather together on Christmas Eve or Christmas, but the text that John just read is very fitting for this morning because what Matthew has recorded in this second half of chapter 2 is what happens after Christmas. It's what happens after Christmas. We read the birth story. We've read the birth story, and most of us are familiar with the birth story of Jesus. But now we get to see what happened next. And in the second half of the chapter of Matthew 2, in verses 13 to 23, we are given a perspective on the Christmas story that we don't often think about. So let's get into this text, and let me give an overview of what's been going on in these first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 1, we, see, we read a genealogy, and we're given Jesus' family tree. We see the origin of Jesus the King. Jesus is described as both the son of Abraham and the son of David. So he is the promised Messiah, son of David, and he is the blessing to the nations, son of Abraham. We see that his family line includes all kinds of sin and tragedy, but it also points us to the providence of God and our need for a savior. Then in the second half of Matthew 1, we hear about Jesus' birth, the arrival of the king. Joseph is visited by an angel and told that the baby would be called Jesus, which means God saves. He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph, of, of course, is naturally shocked and confused to find out that his betrothed is pregnant. But the angel tells him that this child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph lives by faith. He takes Mary as his wife. He names the baby Jesus, as the angel instructed. Then in Matthew 2, which Micah preached through before Christmas, we see the adoration and the worship of this king. Wise men from the east, men from other nations outside of Israel, come to worship Jesus. And it's a signal to us that this king will be for all nations. And now this morning, we get to see what happens after Christmas. So this message this morning is called The Protection of the King. And our, our Christmas cards, some of our Christmas songs, can make us think that Jesus was just born into a very peaceful and relaxed situation. We like to think of the stars and the shepherds and the peaceful, we kind of imagine like a peaceful farmland. And we think the angels played instruments that made like kind of a thrumming sound like this. And we sing things like the stars in the sky, look down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. But then we read Matthew's narrative and he helps us see, no, no, it really wasn't so much like that. That was not all that was going on. At this time, Herod the king is ruling over Judea and Bethlehem. Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, is under Herod's jurisdiction. It's within Judea. And earlier in chapter 2, Herod had encountered these wise men who had traveled hundreds of miles from the east to pay tribute to Jesus. Through the wise men, Herod becomes aware of the prophecy of a king who would be born in Bethlehem. Herod is a very devious man. He asked the wise men to report back to him 
And his stated purpose was so that he could go and worship the child. In reality, Herod's intention is to eliminate any threat to the throne. But once again, we see God intervene, just as already has happened for Joseph before. The wise men are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They go back home by another route. And our text this morning picks up in verse 13 with the hurried flight to Egypt. Chapter 2, verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is Joseph's second visit from an angel. An angel has already come once to Joseph to reassure him back in chapter 1. And Joseph was given instructions. He was to take Mary as his wife, despite all the social stigma and confusion that was going to involve. He was to name the baby Jesus. And Joseph, despite all his unanswered questions, responds in faith. Now danger has arisen again. And the angel appears again in a second dream, instructing Joseph to escape from Herod to Egypt with Mary and the baby. It's about 90 miles from Bethlehem to Egypt, and it was out of Herod's jurisdiction. Egypt at that time had a large Jewish population. So this is a place where Joseph and Mary can go and take cover. Now, it's very interesting. Historically, we know of Egypt as the place of slavery for the Israelites. The great acts of deliverance. For the Israelites happened when God took them out of slavery, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. It's called the Exodus. When the Israelites departed from Egypt by night, it was after the 10th plague, the plague of darkness. And now we see this little family fleeing by night, actually finding refuge in Egypt. And each movement of this story that we see in verses 13 through 23, first the flight to Egypt, then Herod's murderous threats against the children, then the return home. Each one of those three pieces is framed in terms of prophetic fulfillment by Matthew. So when Matthew writes, he is describing true history, and he's also providing what we could call like theological explanation for why these things happened. So in the first two chapters, we repeatedly hear Matthew say, here's what happened. Then he says, Here's why this happened. And when he talks about the flight to Egypt, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by his prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, that's a quotation from Hosea 11. It's speaking of how God brought Israel out of Egypt. That was the first exodus, when God delivered his people from slavery. God was faithful to his people. He delivered them from their captors, even though, as Hosea goes on to say, Israel was unfaithful and repeatedly turned away from God. Now, the Israelites would have not, they would have read Hosea and not thought anything needed to be fulfilled. They would simply have read it as describing something that had already happened. But by quoting Hosea and saying that it's fulfilled in Jesus, Matthew's using Exodus language, but he's saying there's still a greater deliverance 
a second deliverance. What Matthew is saying is that Jesus is the true Israel. And here's what I mean by that. Israel as a nation was unfaithful. When Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. He goes on to say, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. Israel as a nation is unfaithful. But Jesus is the true Israel, meaning he is the one who does what Israel was called to do. He is the one who perfectly obeys God's law and brings blessing to the nations. So what Matthew is doing by quoting Hosea is making a connection with the first exodus and Jesus. That miraculous deliverance from oppression that happened in Exodus and would work through Moses was pointing forward to the even greater deliverance that would be worked through God's son. And now we see Mary and Joseph and Jesus escape to Egypt and we see the second movement of this story. Look with me, if you will, at verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So the natural route for the wise men would have been back through Jerusalem. If your friend from Ohio says he'll stop in and visit you on his way to Rochester, and then he doesn't, well, you know he's avoiding you. Because the only right way to get there is through Buffalo, right? The only right way to get to Rochester from the west is through Buffalo. And it's kind of like that for Herod. When time passes and there's no sign of the wise men, well, Herod knows he's been hoodwinked. They didn't come back the way they were supposed to. He's not the type of man who will just let this go. The text says, he became furious. And furious is a good way of describing Herod. It's not the only time that he's gotten angry before. History, not the Bible, but history, tells us that Herod executed several of his own sons. He had his own wife strangled. There was a high priest in Jerusalem who became a threat to Herod's throne. That man suffered an accidental drowning. Bethlehem is a small village. So based on his earlier conversation with the wise men, Herod has like a ballpark idea of the age range of the child that he's looking for. He knows it's two and under. And we see his cruelty. We see his cruelty as he decides that to be safe, he will simply wipe out all the male children in the village who fall into the age bracket. Two years old and younger. Could have been 10, 20, even 30 boys. And Jesus came to earth. Let's be clear. Jesus came to earth in flesh and blood. It was a real incarnation. If Herod had had his way, Jesus' body would have been torn apart. 
Now, it's not the first time in the Bible that something like this has happened. Again, if you were a Jewish reader, if you were the audience that Matthew was writing to, you would see the parallels that Matthew's making. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see that the nation is multiplying so rapidly, the nation of Israel is multiplying so rapidly that the king of Egypt is threatened. He thinks his throne's being threatened. And he instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male children as they were being born. And yet, at their own peril, Exodus 1 tells us the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, (coughs) but let the male children live. So because of the faith of these midwives and because of the sovereign plan and power of God, we know that a deliverer was raised up. His name was Moses. He, w- he escaped. He was preserved to deliver God's people. Now in Matthew, we have Mary and Joseph, young, poor, powerless, bewildered, and their baby, and they are pitted against a ruthless and powerful king. But God is preserving and protecting them in the face of satanic evil. Despite Herod's plan, despite his power and cruelty, God has sent an angel ahead. And once again, Matthew uses prophetic fulfillment to explain the events that are taking place. He says, thus was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That passage is taken from Jeremiah 31. And, by, and Rachel's weeping is a reference to the Israelites who were being taken into exile at that time by the Babylonians. Now, that can be a little bit confusing to understand because Rachel lived and died long before the exile. But here's what, here's what that means. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. She's the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Jacob and Rachel inherited God's promise to Abraham that he would make of them a mighty nation. So they started to see the fulfillment of this promise. Jacob's family has these 12 strong, robust sons, full of potential, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. But if you flash forward to the exile, all that hope, all that vitality, all that potential, all that strength, it's gone. Rachel's name is used not because she's literally alive and weeping, but because she was the mother of the nation, and she's a personification of the grief that's taking place as Israel is being ripped apart and dragged away by their oppressors. You've probably heard before the expression, your mother or your grandmother would turn over in her grave if, and then you fill in the blank, right? She would turn over in her grave if she knew, well, that's kind of the idea right here. That's kind of the idea. Rachel was not alive at the time of the exile, but the prophet Jeremiah uses Rachel as an image of the just monumental grief of the exile. It's of her weeping and refusing to be comforted. Imagine being a mother of Israelite sons, watching them being dragged away by their captors into faraway lands. And I know, like... I think it's hard for us to grasp. The exile was not just the low point in Israel's history. It was supposed to be the end. The end of the nation. 
Think about this. Invaders came. They tore down the temple. They took the inhabitants captive. They worked strategically to assimilate the Israelites into their own pagan culture. The exile should have been the end. But God was faithful, and he protected a remnant. In the same way, the murders in Bethlehem should have been the end. The murder of children is always satanic. And what we see here is a satanic attempt to eliminate God's chosen one. And yet, God is protecting his son. God is protecting the true king. And the story doesn't end with Herod's murderous rampage. So now we get to verse 19, and we get to this third and final movement, the return to Nazareth. Look at verse 19 through 23. When Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus Archelaus was reigning over Judea in in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, to withdrew, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. <clears throat> so one more time, the angel comes. This is the third angelic visitation, and the third dream that Joseph has now had. And while he's in Egypt, Joseph is informed, <coughs> you can go home now. All those who sought the child's life are dead. Herod's dead. The enemy's been vanquished. And again, Matthew's readers would understand the historic parallels that are being made. They would see that Matthew is describing Jesus as the second and greater Moses. If you remember... Moses was miraculously preserved at his birth. And later on in his life, (coughs) he went into forced exile when Pharaoh wanted to kill him. He was living in the obscure country of Midian when the Lord appeared to him in Exodus 4. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, this is Exodus 4.19, Go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. It seemed impossible, but God was keeping his promises. God was protecting his deliverer then and now. And I think it's, a, I think it's fitting on New Year's. Usually, usually on New Year's, we usually use this time to make promises to ourselves, and we talk to ourselves about how we will do more or do better or how we'll improve. It's only God who always keeps his promises. It's only God who always keeps his promises. And if you need something to hang on to today, the promise of God always outlasts his enemies. And again, as he he has throughout the narrative, Joseph responds in simple obedience. He does exactly what the angel instructs, and he returns with Mary and Joseph to the land of Israel. And when Joseph returns, Herod's gone. But his son Archelaus is now reigning in place of his father. Joseph wants to be away from the whole clan. So he moves his family to Nazareth for protection. 
Nazareth is a very small town. That's where Jesus grew up. That's why Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem, even though he was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a small and royal city. Nazareth was a backwater, a very insignificant and despised city. And for the third time, Matthew describes this in terms of prophetic fulfillment. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's not a specific Old Testament citation that says Jesus will come from Nazareth, but we have repeated indications from the Old Testament that Jesus will be despised and rejected in his unlikely pedigree coming from this city. This might be how we would think of like Olean, right? It's part of that. In John's gospel, when Nathaniel's told about Jesus, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, we see three movements in this story. We see the hurried escape to Egypt. We see the murder of the innocent children in Bethlehem. And we see the safe return back home. And in each passage, Matthew concludes the section by saying something like, this was to fulfill, or this fulfilled, or so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. And you might say, okay, that's, that's all interesting. Especially if you're like a real Bible geek. But why does that matter? What's the relevance of that? Well, first... First, we're seeing that the Bible is a unified whole, not simply a collection of teachings and stories. The Bible's telling a unified message. And what is foretold in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New. (coughs) But secondly, and furthermore, the Bible isn't just unified. It's not simply that the prophecies are fulfilled. The Bible finds its unity in the person of Christ. It's not simply... That was predicted, and then this happened. These promises are fulfilled in the person of Christ. (coughs) And God always keeps his promises. We see that throughout these chapters of Matthew. Look Look for one second at the dreams in Matthew. You might notice there's a consistent dream motif (coughs) that runs through the first two chapters of Matthew. Five times we hear of dreams. Chapter 1, verse 20, an angel appears in a dream to Joseph. Chapter 2, verse 12, the wise men are warned in a dream. Chapter 2, verse 13, an angel warns Joseph in a dream that Herod will be searching for him. Chapter 2, verse 19, an angel comes to Joseph again in a dream, telling him Herod's died. And then chapter 2, verse 22, Joseph's warned in a dream again about returning to Bethlehem. And he goes to Nazareth of Galilee instead. You might wonder, why are there so many dreams? Why did God orchestrate events in this way? Is this normal? It's not normal. We don't see this as like normative or the typical way that God (coughs) works throughout the rest of Jesus' life or in the New Testament. But when it comes, when it comes to the birth of Christ and the protection of Christ, there's very powerful significance in these dreams. While these world-changing events are taking place, the key human actors are all sleeping. And what does that tell us? It was all God's doing. Joseph was a good man. The wise men were shrewd. But the preservation of the child was all God's doing. While Herod was scheming 
While Joseph was sleeping, God was protecting his son and God was keeping his promises. And finally, just as an example of God's promise keeping, I want us to see just a little bit deeper the connection that Matthew is making to this first Exodus. If you read Exodus, it begins with a birth story. An evil ruler is trying to eliminate all the young male children in the land. (coughs) But God works through the faith of very simple people, and he demonstrates his sovereign protection. And in the midst of murder and chaos, he raises up his chosen deliverer. His name is Moses. Moses will lead God's people out of slavery. Moses will mediate the covenant between God and man. He will teach God's law and stand between the people and God. The Exodus was the greatest thing that happened for the people of Israel. Now do you see what Matthew is explaining to his Jewish audience? Once again, a baby's been born and a murderous king tries to kill him. Once again, God is using the obedience of simple people to protect the child. And God chose this child to deliver his people from the slavery of their sin. God was protecting his son and keeping his promises for our deliverance. And by making these parallels with Moses, Matthew sets the stage for the whole rest of Jesus' adult ministry. Because Jesus comes and he faithfully teaches God's word. He perfectly obeys God's law. And when he dies on the cross, he is mediating a new covenant between God and man. And because of the work of Jesus, because of his resurrection, God's people will dwell with God forever in a new promised land. It won't be Canaan. It will be the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. This is what happens after Christmas. And Christmas, we celebrate the sending of the Christ. But we also, when we read this, we remember Jesus came into a violent and chaotic world. We celebrate the sending of Jesus. We remember now the protection of Jesus. But this story is more than something that we celebrate. It's something we need. Because without the humility of Jesus coming to earth, without his incarnation, without his suffering, without his crucifixion, without his resurrection, we would all be lost. We needed God to send his son to earth. And we needed God to protect his son. And God did that because God always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and we worship you and praise you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are a promise-keeping God who knows all things and orchestrates things according to your will and for your glory and for our good. And we thank you for sending a Savior and for protecting that Savior. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. We thank you for all that you have done for us. And I pray that our hopes would be firmly fixed in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me now? And we will respond to God in song.